welcome to The Well Podcast. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and give you practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit thewell.ca. Meet Susie. She's been the best closer on her sales team for the last five years. At 28, she's now the youngest regional sales director in the company. More money and a bigger team. Great, except that the team have voices and they're using them to express issues unfair treatment, lack of representation, and what their company needs to do to respond to some of the social issues of their day. She feels the pressure to respond. Meet Xavier. He's in grade 11 and up to his neck in school, work, sports, part-time job, gaming, and hanging out with his friends. His parents are on him more lately about pulling his weight around the house, and they seem to get in the same argument about his particular group of friends. He feels like his parents have no clue what really matters to him. Maria is newly married, one year into wedded bliss, and things are getting a bit more day to day. Feels like her and her husband are starting to notice some of the less wonderful things about each other. They had their first real fight a week ago, and it was kind of scary for both of them. They didn't talk about it after. Mostly things are fine. Seems like they're both just hoping that doesn't come up again. Meet Sunny. What used to be an enjoyable way to end a stressful day, scrolling through Instagram to see what his friends and family are up to, has now become the most stressful part of his day. Posts between friend groups and family chats are more combative and somewhat divisive. People are DMing him on the side to complain about other friends and family members and their views and attitudes. And anytime he's responded, it's felt like a no-win situation. Raul is a dad of two which was always a challenge, except that now he's divorced, it feels overwhelming. Between working out schedules, avoiding the landmines, and making joint decisions with his ex, he's continually frustrated. He's trying to make it amicable, but it feels like she just has it in for him. They're down to virtually no conversation, and the minimal amount of texting is barely civil. Meet Heidi. She loves Jesus. She's passionate about her faith, reading scripture, watching YouTube, and listening to podcasts, and living by what's true. But not everyone else in her church seems to share her passion or her perspective. This last week in home group, they got into a conversation about a pretty hot topic in the news. Many group members shared their thoughts and feelings, but it was uncomfortable. She left feeling unsettled and somehow not as close to everyone in the group as she felt before. (laughs) Our lives are full of relationships and conversations and interactions. And let's be honest, while these are sort of, in one sense, fictitious scenarios, we can relate in some shape or form because everywhere you turn in all the relationships we have, it feels like conversations are more often strained than they used to be. Um, In some ways, we could describe them as feeling like they are unhealthy conversations, conflicted, divisive, stressful, not productive or fruitful, um, hurtful, and discouraging at times. And maybe this has always been true because interpersonal dynamics and conversations in our work, in our school, with our friends, with our family, with each other, in the church are just complicated. 
But there's a few reasons why I think they're more complicated than ever. Maybe every generation thinks that. But let me name a few things about our particular culture that are making for perhaps more unhealthy conversations than healthy ones. One of them is that we live in a multicultural context and one of the most, if not the most multicultural city in the world. And what a multicultural dynamic adds to conversations is that in every interaction, there's my culture, where I'm coming from, my background, my way of seeing the world. There's your culture, your background, your ethnicity, your culture, your way of seeing the world. And then there's the culture that we are in. <laughs> which may not be where either of us were born or where either of our families are background or just that there's a uniqueness to the environment where we're having that conversation. And so views about money and sex and power and family and relationships and marriage are all different in different cultures. And yet we are coming together in this multicultural context, which we openly celebrate and, and boast as a city, we're the most multicultural city in the world, as we should in one sense. And yet that creates complexity in relational dynamics. Secondly, technology. Technology has made, I think, for more unhealthy conversations. And there's a few reasons for that. Some of these are like substantiated by research. On one level, technology means um, that we are having less face-to-face -face conversations and more digital conversations. And when there are less face-to-face -face conversations, you have less to work with in terms of interacting with another person. If you're uh, interacting over a text, you don't have the visuals, you don't have body language, you don't have um, eyes, you don't have posture, you don't have tone, you only have the words and the text themselves. But even think about this, think about this, it's kind of crazy. Even in a video chat or a Zoom that so many of us were on, you don't, you have, they are face to face, but you don't have eye contact. In fact, for you to feel like I'm looking at you, I actually have to look away from the screen and look into the camera on my computer or my phone. And if we were both doing it at the same time, neither of us is actually seeing each other. So it's impossible to have eye contact, even though you may call it a face to face interaction. And it was interesting, a, a, a study in the University of Maine uh, asked several hundred people who are uh, hi, um, high or regular users of media, as in like posting. On the one hand, those who use social media and, and interaction media to interact a lot, self-reported a very uh, high ability to decode nonverbal cues. So people who use social media a lot say, yeah, I'm actually above average. It was a test they took to uh, self-identify. I'm above average when it comes to reading nonverbal cues. And yet in an objective test that those same people use, they scored below average in actual fact of being able to decode nonverbal communication. So not only do we have less face-to-face -face interaction, that less face-to-face -face interaction is making us less effective when we have the face-to-face -face or in-person interaction to be able to understand someone's body language, someone's tone, how they're looking, how they're feeling, what their eyes are telling us. We're getting worse at it. Not to mention the fact that in technology or certainly in social media, it is a platform, if I can say this, of statements, not so much questions and listening. It's about putting your ideas out there and free speech and all of that stuff, which actually makes, just makes it harder in a sense to listen. And of course, you've all heard of the social media algorithm, which all it does is play back to us the voices that agree with us. So more and more we can start to think, the way I think is the truth. <laughs> And quite frankly, that just makes for unhealthy conversations. And then maybe most profound and most damaging to our ability to have healthy conversations is that the models in our world have failed us.
our models of politics, of church, of family, and of media have, have failed us. In a sense, we live in a world, in a political world, that is a, uh, operates on and leverages a politic of division. And so parties and politicians make their stand and their platform as who they're not or how they're against. Any soundbite you hear on the news from the official opposition party or the person who didn't get elected, the first thing out of their mouths is what the other person failed to do and how they would have done differently and the negative, the, it's a politics of division. This is the world we are living in. This is how votes are being elicited from us. But also in the church, we live in communities and places where the church has defined itself by what it, how it thinks differently and who's different from them and how we are, we are the ones who have it right. And this idea of like true theology and what, who has the most accurate and the church, in, in fact, in these last couple of years, surprisingly, I think in many ways, shockingly, sadly, became more divided than ever. Not only that, in the family whether it is divorce or separation or just homes that are full of unhealthy conflict between spouses, between children, between parents and children or grandparents or, or uh, extended family conflict. We do not have models of how to have good conversation, healthy conversation, healthy conflict. <laughs> and of course, what do we choose to consume in our pastime? Not media that's full of really healthy conversation, right? Most of the stuff we watch, stories about families or tribes or communities or businesses uh, or whatever that is full of division, conflict, and vengeance. We, it would be laughable to say, oh, we watched this great show about how to resolve conflict. Well, that's not what we choose to do for entertainment. So our models for how to do this have failed us. We are in trouble. <laughs> And so really over the next, uh, what we uh, want to do is, is recognize like this is where we are as people. Like, uh, it's, and it's not, I put those fictitious characters about Susie and Xavier, but it's us, right? We are all in this boat. We, this is the air we're breathing and we need help. I want to take a moment actually to give us a chance to self-identify as a community together. Where are we at? Where are you at? So there's going to be a Slido survey that's going to come up on the screen for you, and um, we're going to get to see our results as a community. How do we think about our ability to interact with each other, people's ability to interact with us? Where are the places of conflict or, um, or you know, unhealthy conversations that we feel like we're having in our lives? So we're going to take a moment to do that. Well, for all of the reasons I mentioned earlier, and as we can just see from our own community and interaction, this is something we need. Over the next seven weeks, we're starting a series called Two Ears, One Mouth, The Anatomy of Healthy Conversation. And if I can say this, actually the anatomy of healing conversation, like how do we as individuals, as Jesus followers, as people in our interactions, in our workplace, with our friendships, in our families, with each other, in the church, how do we grow in our understanding? And the clue is in the title, two ears, one mouth. What does it mean to actually learn to listen to one another, to truly hear each other, to truly value each other, and to have conversations that are healing? And listen, this isn't just about you and I in our various interpersonal spheres of work and relationships. I feel like there's so much riding on this for us as a church. Because if, if the models of politics and church and family and media have failed us as a culture, as a country, as a society, where are people going to go to experience and learn 
healing and healthy conversations. Friends, the church has to become maybe the last place on earth where it's safe to come and actually learn how to have good conflict, good conversation, for this to be a place of healing because we as a community have learned how to do this together. We have followed the way of Jesus in becoming a healthy and healing environment. And so my prayer is not just for you in your life and interpersonal relationships that it would be a gift for you, but for us as a community to become a place of health and healing for the world as it relates to how we do conflict and conversation and dialogue together. Now, our starting point for today, I'm going to say it right up front before we even read the scripture, it's going to feel cliche. You're going to be like, oh yeah, okay, that's the starting point. But the thing is, the reason it feels cliche is because it gets at something that is actually a quite a big barrier to us, from, between us and having healthy conversations. And part of the reason it's a barrier is we don't even see it. And so I want you to listen to these few verses that are read for us from a letter um, that one of the early church founders wrote to a new church um, in Central Asia. And then we're gonna talk about um, what is this very cliche but actually really powerful way to begin to remove or deal with the barriers that exist between us and having healthy conversation? If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. Perhaps this is a scripture that you've read before or heard before, or if you've ever been to a wedding, Christian wedding, you've probably heard it. <laughs> it is a statement on love. And actually, in these just a few verses, it says something really profound about love. That more important than gifts, like spiritual gifts or talents, more important than your faith, how much faith you have in God, more important than your virtue and the kind of upstanding moral or ethical character you might have. More important than all of those things is love. In fact, if the way you respond and the way you interact in your relationships with each other, if love does not lead, then it actually nullifies or renders meaningless any gifts or talents or faith or virtue that you might have. That's what this passage says. Love has to lead the way because without love, none of those things matter. In fact, we often lean on those other things and uh, to consider those things the assets we have in life and in conversations with others, our gifts, our talents, our abilities, our spiritual gifts, our, um, our virtue, our, um, you know, the, the kind of person we are, the way that we choose to live our lives, our faith in God, how much we pray, but these things are actually nullified, void. They're useless unless love leads the way. Love is actually the way to healthy conversation. Now, you might say, well, okay, that not that cliche? Like, this is about love? And what's interesting is that one of the books that I use in premarital counseling is I help couples get prepared for marriage makes this point that 
Like pretty much everyone would say, oh, what's needed in, in every relationship? Pretty much everyone would say love. And yet they did a, a survey with about a thousand college students about, well, what is love? How would you define it? And no one characteristic was mentioned even half the time. So thousand people who all agree love is the most important thing can't agree on what love is. What even is that? So we can't just say, oh yeah, love is what we need to have healthy conversation. But this passage actually goes on to define to help us in a very practical, gritty way, what does love look like? And what's interesting is there's a number of characteristics, some of which are mentioned in the verses that were read for us. And if you read the rest of this passage, that go on to describe love in a whole bunch of different ways. But lest we get caught up in all of the minutia of what does this word mean? What does that word mean? Um, author and uh, professor and uh, former pastor Gordon Fee, when he was writing uh, his commentary on this, gave us a very helpful um, summary of what love is and what all of these specific words that are describing love really in summary describe. And he's saying the, the writer here is basically saying love is the opposite of self-interest or a more commonly used word, pride. Love is the opposite of pride or love is the opposite of self-interest. And this is where it gets a little more helpful for us to go, okay, if we're going to have healthy conversations and love needs to lead the way in all of our interactions, well, what is love? Well, it's the opposite of self-interest. The opposite of love is not hate. It's self-interest. It's love. If love is about you first, self-interest is about me first. But I think we need to get even more granular to go, okay, well, how does that work itself out in the way that we do conflict and have conversation and have dialogue in all of our interpersonal relationships? What is the big barrier that exists between us and, and the people we're having conversations with that keep it, that make it unhealthy, that make it unproductive or sometimes destructive or frustrated or hurtful? If I can say it this way, he says it's pride or self-interest. And there are two sides actually of pride. One is arrogance. The other is insecurity. Self-interest is both arrogance and insecurity. Now, maybe it's easier to notice or understand the arrogance stuff. You know, arrogance says, I'm good. I deserve the good things I get. I'm probably right. When I walk into a room, people want to talk to me. I'm an important person. Arrogance is rating, rating the world and the sliding scale of whatever metrics you use and say, yeah, no, I'm on the top half for sure. I'm on the front end of the bell curve. That's what arrogance is. Insecurity is the opposite. I'm no good. You know, people probably don't want to talk to me. I'm stupid, or I'm usually wrong, or I've, I screw up, I can't do anything right, or if I walk into a room, people wouldn't be interested in who I am. I'm always on the wrong end of things. Like, so arrogance and insecurity, two very opposite sides of the same coin that is self-interest or pride. You can see that, right? Because both arrogance and insecurity are obsessed with self. It is about the self. And as we think about well, what this actually looks like, um, we can start to see why does arrogance and insecurity, even though they're very opposite reactions, and I don't think it's helpful to go, oh, certain people are arrogant, certain people are insecure. I think all of us as people have arrogance and insecurity in us. We all have self-interest in us. But we can see even though they look very different from each other, they actually can show up the same way in terms of barriers for how we have interactions with each other. Um, for example, in an argument, an, an insecure person and an arrogant person, neither of them are, or both of them have to be right. 
In an argument, both an insecure person and an arrogant person have to be right. Here's what I mean. An arrogant person has to be right because they assume they're right in the conversation. In fact, being right, being smart, being capable um, is what makes them who they are. It's why they feel good about themselves. It's why people look to them. It's why they got promoted. It's why they have the role they have in their friend group or their family or their life experience. And whatever those things are, they say, yeah, that's I. And if, I, if they have power, if they have wealth, if they have influence, if they have position or popularity, they use that for their advantage in the conversation and they have to be right because that's what continues to make them who they are. An insecure person has to be right because their greatest fear is that the things they think about themselves will be true, that they aren't capable, they aren't smart, they aren't right, they aren't good enough, they are a failure. And so every argument where they might be on the losing end, where they might be proved wrong, is so damaging to them because it confirms that the worst fears about them are true. And neither, therefore, neither an arrogant person nor an insecure person will really want to go to, uh, like in an argument, acknowledge that the other person is right, or even want to go later and ask for forgiveness or say, you know what, you were right, or I was wrong, or never mind who was right and wrong, I shouldn't have said that, because that works against their arrogance and insecurity, right? Opposite reactions, but it can show up the same way in an argument. It can also show up in meeting someone who's new. Neither an arrogant person nor an insecure person in their meeting someone well new will actually um, ask good questions or be a good listener, right? An arrogant person in interaction will want to make statements about who they are to continue to build the brand that is me. An arrogant person will want to lead with who they are, what they've accomplished, uh, what they did last week. They will assume the other person is interested in their life and they will give out information about themselves. That's what an arrogant person does. And they want, they assume that they are worth knowing and they, or they might not even seek out someone who's new and unless they assess, oh, could that person make me look better if I'm friends with them? An arrogant person therefore will not be asking good questions about who the other person is and what they are and what they did last week and will not be, even if they are asking questions, they won't be listening to the answer because they're just thinking about what they're gonna say next to make themselves look good. But an insecure person can't ask good questions or listen either. <laughs> because they're worried about how am I looking? What does this other person think about me? And did what I just say sound stupid? Do they like what I'm wearing? Do, I think, do they think I'm cool or are they cool? And am I not worthy to be in their presence? And maybe I won't, you know, I'm not sure. And even if they do ask a question, they won't be listening to the answer because they're worried about what are they gonna say next and how they're looking. Or they might not even seek out a new person to begin with because they're too afraid to put themselves forward and they might think, oh no, like I, I'm not worthy to talk to that person or they wouldn't respond to me well. For opposite reasons, both an arrogant and an insecure person will not ask good questions or listen well. But not just um, in an argument or a conversation, but let's say in a team meeting or uh, in a group project, neither an insecure nor an arrogant person will want to ask others for input or invite disagreement. An arrogant person won't notice the person in the group who hasn't contributed yet or who hasn't said anything yet because they just want their ideas to get, make sure, to get heard. They wanna make sure they get the project done well because the boss is counting on them or they just wanna make sure they get a good mark to keep it up because that's who they are. They get good marks so they get projects done and they're not interested in people who aren't contributing because their ideas are better anyways or they're not interested in hearing disagreements because that's not gonna help get where they wanna go. And so an arrogant person will not notice people who are not contributing, will not listen listen or invite disagreeing views or input. 
But likewise, an insecure person, an insecure person will not notice other people in the room who may or may not be participating. They won't notice body language or cues or someone who may look like they're frustrated. In fact, people might think they're upset because their brows furrowed or their face is scrunched up because all they're thinking about is what they did say or should have said or could have said or need to say next to make sure they look good, to make sure they know they deserve to be at this table or to make sure other people don't count them out because their greatest fear is that they aren't worthy, they aren't valuable, they don't have anything to contribute or people will leave them behind. Either way, they're not going to notice other people and they certainly aren't going to invite disagreement because again, it would confirm the worst fears about themselves. Whether in an argument or meeting new people or in a team or a group project, um, for opposite reasons, an arrogant and an insecure person cannot notice and listen and hear and actively seek out the other person. And let's be honest, uh, this can happen even in a church community. A, a church community that has a, has a posture of arrogance or insecurity will be suspicious and judgmental of outsiders or new ideas or different thinking. Right? It's possible for a church to take on an air of arrogance about their theology or how good they do everything or what they look like or how capable they've been or what mission, remember virtue, what, what good things they've done in the world or what faith they have that they will be suspicious or kind of think like, oh, other people don't do it as good as we do, or that church has bad theology, or we're the ones that have it right, or that denomination or that group of people, they don't think properly, or anyone who comes in who has a disagreeing view, they'll say, well, we don't need that. We've got, we're fine, thank you. Or an insecure church will, uh, for opposite reasons, respond the same way to new ideas, because every new person that comes in will, will be perceived as a threat to what the community has, and we can't let go of this, and what if I lose, if I have a new person come into my home group, that means I might lose my place or my voice, and I'm scared. I don't want to lose that. I'm afraid of losing that, or it won't invite disagreeing ideas, because the worst thing ever will be as a church to admit, oh, we were wrong, or we failed that person, we missed that, or we didn't address that need. Friends, are you seeing this? I mean, I see this all over my own life. And, and as I said, it's not that someone is an arrogant person or someone is an insecure person. We all operate out of arrogance and insecurity in different spheres. And maybe in one sphere of your life, it comes out like arrogance. In another place, it comes out like insecurity. But we all have this. And all of it gets in the way of being able to see others and notice others and hear others and ask good questions and listen and deal with disagreement and invite disagreement or new ideas. And it affects us individually and as a community of faith. So what's the solution? Just don't be arrogant. Don't be insecure. You know, like just deal with your stuff. Get it together and, you know, try to love other people. Is that what this is? The passage that came to mind as I was thinking about this, this very real dynamic and challenge that we have as individuals and as a faith community is one that this same author wrote um, a, a couple books later in the book of Ephesians. And he says this in Ephesians 3, and he's praying for his church community. So he says, I pray that out of his, that's Jesus' glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And listen to this. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love or in Christ's love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people. So all of you together in the community of faith, power to grasp, listen to this, to understand how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ 
and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. This is actually encouraging on a number of levels because here's this, you know, uh, founder of the faith, the Christian faith, praying for a church. And what he prays is that they would have power, power to grasp what? Or to understand, comprehend, or lay hold of love. And not first love for others, like uh, the opposite of self-interest, getting rid of insecurity and arrogance and actually be able to love other people, to think of others first. Where does that begin? He says, you need to grasp the love of Christ for you. You cannot pour out this kind of love until you have received the love of Christ that heals our arrogance and heals our insecurity. Friends, we need to be healed of this stuff. These are things within us that are not healthy ourselves, arrogance and insecurity. And we need to receive the love of Christ into us so that like a tree, our roots grow down deep and we are stable. And that growing up in us is the love of God that results in branches, leaves, and fruit like a tree. That's something healthy and alive with the love of Christ. I am convinced that the more and more that we are convinced, that we grasp, that we understand, that we believe in our hearts of the deep love of Christ for us, it will slowly begin to heal us of the arrogance and insecurity that so often sabotage our ability to have good conversation, good dialogue, and even good conflict. And so I wanna lead you through something. It was a prayer exercise that my wife Jen wrote a couple of years ago that was so helpful for me. in being able to comprehend this love, because this isn't something that we easily get. That's why the Apostle Paul, I'm praying that you would have spiritual power. And you're like, yeah, yeah, spiritual power to what? To understand how much you're loved. This does not penetrate our hearts easily. We actually need ways to access it. And so I want to lead you through a little bit of a prayer exercise. And and, um, you can even take pictures of the screen if you're watching this, because this may be something that you need to do regularly. But we're going to begin with a a small prayer, and then I'm going to lead you through just a few minutes of reflecting on the scripture and actually experiencing the deep love of Christ in our lives and hearts. And if you've done this before and you're familiar, that's great. If this is totally new for you, this is a beautiful way to actually reflect on and let the love of Christ permeate your soul, your mind, what you really believe about yourself. So we pray first, Lord Jesus, I ask that you would give me power and strength to understand your love. You just say that in your head your heart. I ask that you give me power and strength to understand your love. Show me the full extent of your love in my life so that I may be filled to overflowing with it. Show me the extent of your love in my life that I might be filled to overflowing with it. Okay, now I just want to invite you to close your eyes and uh, just go on this a little bit of this journey with me. Slow your breathing down. Just take some deep breaths. And as you're breathing, you can kind of, it's like a prayer. As you breathe in, just breathe in, Jesus. And breathe out, ground me in your love. Jesus, ground me in your love. I want you to picture yourself outside in front of a large tree. To see it in your mind's eye. The tree's too large for you to wrap your arms around and too high for you to see the top of. 
the roots are also large and they're, they're poking out through the ground in places so that you have to step up on them. They're so big you can stand on them. Just picture that tree in your mind. As you stand in the shade of this beautiful tree, just in your heart, ask Jesus to tell you about his love for you. And we're going to ask him to speak to us in four ways. First, ask him to tell you how wide his love is for you. In other words, who else is included in his wide embrace along with you? Or how wide have his arms reached out for you at times when you have strayed from his presence? How has he outstretched his arms to help you or to do a miracle for you or your family? Just remember that, how wide his love has been. Just take your time. We won't rush through this. Now ask him to show you how long his love is for you. Like think back over your past and ask him to show you all the ways he has loved you through it. Over your long story. Think back of all the ways he has loved you. Now ask, how high is his love? What are the high points in your life that he has experienced with you? What is he proud of that you have accomplished or overcome or achieved? Just think about how high his love is for you at the high points of life. And now lastly, ask Jesus to describe the depths of his love for you. This could mean either in the low points in your life or in the deep things that you keep hidden or close to your heart. Ask him to show you his love and grace for you in those deep places.
uh, just take a moment and just thank him for whatever he's shown you. Maybe it's just one memory or one thought or one idea or one experience where you remembered his love for you. Friends, this is something, I mean, this has been a very short period of time to do that, so this is something you can do regularly. Um, And as we do this more and begin to grasp the love of God for us, as it begins to actually permeate our heart and our mind, we think about ourselves, how we see ourselves, how we see the world, and remember that we are deeply loved and experience it and see all of the ways that God has and is and will love us. It actually begins to heal our insecurity. And when we grasp his love, we're actually able to let go of and lose things that we're happy to lose. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm, I want to let go of the fear of what other people think of me. I want to let go of feeling like I regret the tones or the words I used in an argument with someone close to me yesterday or the day before. I want to be free of the stress of having to be great and smart and capable and always be right. I want to be free of the anxiety of like how I'm coming across to other people or when I'm in new, new people or, me, or in new situations. I want to be free not to have to feel the pressure to respond immediately to someone who's upset or some uh, social media thing that demands a response. I want to have peace in my heart. I want to let go, I want to let go of that demand to respond. I want to let go of the stress and anxiety of feeling like I have to know what's best or right or have to be right in a situation or in in my faith or wherever I happen to be. Those are things I'm happy to let go of so that I can grasp and hang on to the love of Christ. My invitation really for you over the next uh, seven weeks as we engage in this series, but actually even a posture that I think will help you in all of these spheres of your life is just to be open-handed. Like just to be open, not only to receive God's love, but I feel like a posture like this just releases us from the stress and pressure of having to be right or having to respond. So I I not only want to invite you to have this posture during these next seven weeks and, and in your home groups, if you're in a group, to be discussing these kind of things, to be open to others and to what God wants to say to you and to the healing he wants to bring into your life, to your insecurity and your arrogance. But also that even in the moment, you know, when you're at work and there's something stressful going on that under the table, you can just open your hands like a moment. When you're having an argument with a loved one or whatever, you just stand like this a little bit. When you're feeling the pressure of your device, that you just have what's happening and respond or an email or a text or something, you just put it down for a second and open your hands. <laughs> That this posture, remember, to, be re- to receive the love of God that heals this arrogance or insecurity and to be free and open to what God might be having for us in this even very difficult interaction. You know, this promise of Ephesians 3, this prayer that we become a tree, is not just about primarily us as individuals, 
But Paul is actually praying for the church to become a community like this, a church and a community that is a people that is deeply rooted in the love of Christ together and all the roots interconnected and that the love of Christ is flowing up and through us to a world. And when a tree that is healthy grows strong, it provides shade and shelter and refuge for people who are hurting and banged up from unhealthy conversation and unhealthy environments. It provides um, beauty and sweetness in, its, in, its, in what it looks like and the fruit that it provides and nourishment to a world that is hungry for something different. Where the models have failed us, let the church, friends, let us at the well become a tree like that. That is my prayer and hope for us as we make the journey the next few weeks. I'm so glad you joined us today and I look forward to what God has for us over these next seven weeks.